0: Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Foolery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Jean Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills.
1: We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky.
0: My daddy came home. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Springer.
1: Jerry Springer. We. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You. You, always, you always say a brilliant studio audience
1: i do they are brilliant they're here listening to you they're
2: here how <laughs> brilliant could they be <laughs> yeah, <this> is- yeah. <laughs> maybe you're taking a day off no thanks for coming i, I, I really i love the environment of i mean I, honestly that's the
0: most fun part about doing this yep. is being here at folk you know, school coffee parlor yeah. The most fun part is not being here with Megan and me. It's, uh, I mean, I like the folk school coffee with Megan. Well, yeah, here, yeah, that's that's fair. And you always come along. That's fair. You have nothing to do. I have nothing to do. I take the, the 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 Ludlow City bus comes right down the street, and I (laughs) come off the hill and jump on. I saw one of those things. Yeah, uh, what do you uh, what do you call it? A bus, a bus. A bus yeah. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people go. A on. lot of lot of regular people, normal people, get yeah. on those and go to do their they destinations. destinations. Driving it? How no, no. Work? There's <laughs> a paid driver. It's a whole deal, Jerry. Everybody pays a little bit of money. Blah 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 blah. Okay, but anyway, <laughs> hey. uh Recently, and we we record these ahead of time and all of yes. that, but it wasn't long ago. There was the holiday of Memorial Day. Oh, right. It made me think of something. It made me think that you and I, who uh, graduated from high school the same year, although you were in New York, I was down in Cincinnati, and uh, we went off to college. We had friends who faced military service it was the early part of the Vietnam War but the war was happening when we were in college and then you went to uh, law school I went to graduate school and it made me think uh, to ask you because I want to say to you first off thank you for your service I was in the Army Reserves I was in the. Oh, jag were you car. really? No, I really was. In the jaguar. You okay. yeah,
2: can't believe.
0: <laughs> I can't. I believe did. That. They shaved
2: my head and everything, and I was in the Army Reserve. It was okay. a, a lawyers unit, a jag unit, and uh, but I was assigned after going through basic training, which w- was no fun. Um,
0: <laughs> How did you
3: do in boot camp? Oh,
2: you had a you sweat. <laughs> No, but anyway, boot camp was you know for someone like me it was really tough. But anyway, it, I went through boot camp. But then I was assigned to Sharonville, Ohio. Well, even before
0: you go to Sharonville, when you did boot camp, okay, I know what did, you're referring did, to. Yeah, <laughs> did the uh, how'd you do with it? Because look, the boot I, camp I didn't, didn't go work military, out well for me. But there are drill instructors. There are people who oh. make a man of you. So oh. did the drill sergeant hunt? Did he I'll never like, forget him? Did he uh, like honestly, you? He's
2: right off of the posters. You know, with the Smokey the Bear hat and all that. Okay, so I went to law school first. You know, out of college, I went. To, I graduated Northwestern, and then I was opposed to the war. So I announced... The Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, yeah. So I, I just was new here in Cincinnati. It was 1969. I decided that I was going to run. I was 25, so I was old enough suddenly, to run for the United States Congress as an anti-war candidate, so I entered the Democratic primary, and of course, no one knew where I was. I was this kid from New York who went to law school in Chicago, but I just arrived in Cincinnati. And but there was a fella on the western half of Cincinnati and Hamilton County uh, named Don Clancy, who was a longtime congressman. But back then, we were referred to as hawks and doves. And he was on the Armed Services Committee, and he was really a hawk. So I decided to get an apartment on the west side of town, which was his district, because I knew I wasn't going to get elected to go to Congress, but I wanted to protest the war. So I wanted to find someone who was really a hawk. So I entered the Democratic primary. He's on the Armed Services Committee. I announced for Congress on November... 25th, 1969, on November 28th, I was at Fort Knox. I had been called up in the interim. Wow. Now, I'm not saying he had anything to do with that, but good Lord. So here I am. Dude had power. Oh, my gosh. And it was scary. Now, I was, you know, 25. So I was older than anyone because all the rest of the guys, and it was guys back then in the boot camp. They uh, they were all eighteen, you know, right out of high school. Here I was because I had gone to law school in the interim, whatever, in college. So I was, I was much older. And here, three days later, I give this speech about getting out of Vietnam. And now I'm being hauled off on a bus, downtown Cincinnati, that took me to Fort Knox. I bet
0: that drill instructor
2: hated your sorry ass. <laughs> oh. Well, he didn't yet know. I was, no one knew I was running for Congress. I, I wasn't going to tell them. Yeah. And uh, frankly, I was frightened. So we get there. Now, this is, it is freezing cold, because this is the end of November, mm-hmm. and it was just numbingly cold um, down in Fort Knox. So you get there, they shave your head, take all your clothing, whatever that, and then there's um, a meeting. You know, where you all are there, and then they want to find out all about you. There are 250 guys in a company, and we're all sitting on the floor there in our T-shirts, freezing to death. I'm shivering. I said, this cannot be. This is horrible. I'm, I'm a pampered guy. I don't, I don't do outdoors well.
0: <laughs>
2: now... He says, "Okay, to fill out the forms. How many of you graduated high school? About half of them did. You know, how many have been to college? Only three guys. Whoa, Uh-oh. out of the 250, had even been to college. How many graduate? And, and raise your hand. You know, and how many graduated college? So I raised my hand. Now I'm the only one. Oh, my how many God. went beyond college?"
4: You're just making friends. So now,
2: now even the other guys are pissed at me. So now the sergeant comes up. Ah, Einstein. Okay, I tell you what, Einstein, you're in charge of the Christmas show. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. Because this was November 28th. And there would be, you get a two week Christmas leave, you know, if you're in the States. So. December 16th, we were going to have the Christmas show. Now, they didn't know I was Jewish or anything, but I was in charge of the Christmas show. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we go through basic training, the drill. That you're up at 4 in the morning. It's, well, yeah, look, the poor, on a serious note, the poor guys that went over and had a fight and die. You know, so what am I complaining about? But anyway, that's a point. So there I am. Now, it's the day of the Christmas show. And, you know, I asked the guys, anybody can do anything? A guy could play the guitar, another guy could, whatever. They sang, they did that. So I get up there to do my op- in the opening act. Now, I'm not in show business yet. You know, I, I went to law school, I knew nothing about it. But I figured I'll go up and tell some jokes. Oh, and I no. said, we got a lot of talented guys. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, none of them could show up, but we got a lot of talented guys here. <laughs> and later on, one of the drill sergeants, referring to Sergeant Hunt, is going to come up here and do an impersonation of a human being.
0: <laughs> Whoa! Well, the Whoa! guys Whoa! loved it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <free-a-ray-a-ray. laughs>
2: so I figure, oh, I'm on a roll now. <laughs> and I just kept going. Every joke I could think of. Oh,
0: my.
2: <laughs> now it's the next morning. Reveille is normally at 4 in the morning. It seemed earlier when the bugle blew, and it was. It was like 3.15... And you have literally uh, a minute and a half to get downstairs outside and line up in front of the barracks. 250 guys. Freezing. You don't have time to put on sweaters. There. You just go down there. And they're all shaking. 250 guys. And he starts at the end of the line. The Sergeant, drill, Sergeant, the drill, sorry. Sergeant Hunt. And he goes up with his big smoky bear hat and he looks you right in the face, starting at the end of the line. The first guy, Are you a dickhead? And the guy would stand there and go, No, sir. And then he'd move to the next one. Are you a dickhead? No. Well, there are 250 guys. I'm somewhere in the middle. So let's say 75 guys in. He comes to me, and I figure I know the drill now. Yeah. So he's right in my face. Are you a dickhead? And I go, no, sir. But he doesn't move. He said, I said, are you a dickhead? No, sir. Now I'm starting to figure it out.
1: Are you a dickhead?
2: Uh, yes, sir. You damn right, you dickhead. <laughs> Get down, give me 100 push-ups, 100 push-ups. And nobody is going up back to the barracks until you do 100. So now the whole company is really pissed at me. And good Lord, I've never done a knee bend in my life. I'm trying to do 100 push-ups. It went on forever. And he's screaming at me. He's down on one knee. His face in my. Oh, it was horrible. And for the rest of boot camp I was dickhead they gave, me, <laughs> they gave me every worst assignment you could get except here's the end of the story I had been the head of the campaign to lower the voting age to at that time 19 in southern Ohio and we won down here in southern Ohio one night I gave a speech at the democratic county dinner in Hamilton County And the guest speaker was Birch Bayh, at the time, the senator from Indiana. So he was the main speaker, but they let me get up there for two minutes to give a talk on why we have to lower the voting age to 19. I I said it should be 18, but on the ballot it's 19. How can you send these guys off to fight and die for you and you don't even let them have a say in what our policy should be? It's disgraceful, blah, blah, blah. Well, the speech was well received. Birch Bayh was head chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So while I'm at Fort Knox in basic training, one day, this is now January, one day we line up every morning as we do. The captain, whoever it is, says, Private Springer. Not private dickhead, but private Springer, yeah. (laughs) Private Springer, what? Do I have a brother? (laughs) He says, come with me. So they put me in a Jeep, and they take me to the commanding general of Fort Knox. Birch Bayh had sent a request for me to come to speak before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee on the constitutional amendment to lower the voting age. And that day, it was Ted Kennedy, then me, and then Allard Lowenstein. I don't know if you remember Allard. He tragically was murdered years later by a crazy client. He was a lawyer, but he was very big in the anti-war movement, a real, you know, a real star of the movement. So here I am against the war in Vietnam. And that was my military. Wow. When you got back, did they treat, did the drill sergeant treat you differently? Unbelievable. Sergeant Hunt, he was scared because, you know, the military is scared of anyone in Congress because back then, you know, you control the budget. So he didn't know. I mean, he didn't know I wasn't going to win or anything like that. I was treated, and then all the other guys would come up to me if they wanted something done. Hey, could you talk to, you know, because they were as nice uh, nice as could be to me.
0: You know, it was a t- tough time, and I'm with you. I look back on that era of, like, there are men uh, and some women as well, but mostly men who we both knew who served, some of whom died, and there were a lot of people who just went. It was and they may have been conflicted, but they answered the call, and... I was the same situation. I Do I go to Canada? Because I did not believe in the war. My path was uh, I went into education where I met a lot of guys who were there till they were 26 because that was the magic year. This was right before the lottery. And then when their 26th birthday came, they quit teaching and they went off to their quote unquote real jobs. A lot of them as attorneys, by yeah. the way. I stayed in the profession and did a full career and had, you know, Wish I could do it again. I loved yeah. it and worked in urban areas, et cetera. But you could do daisy chaining, as we called it back then. It was a kind of slick method of draft dodging, where you would go from. I had so many deferments: occupational, student, graduate school, I, Vista, occupational yeah. again. I never in had education. that. I mean, right right out of law
2: school, I became one A. Yeah. So I was one. I was ready to go, and I had made the decision. And I oh, my mom was so worried about it, but I made the decision. If I'm called, I'm going. Uh, because I knew at, back then that I didn't care about a career. I only cared about politics. You know, it's, I was one of these liberal hippies. And, but I wanted to go into politics. So I knew. You, you had know, to do it? I had to go. Yep. So the sad ending to that story, as it turned out, I come back after serving in, on active duty. And then, you know, you go to your monthly meetings or whatever. But now I'm campaigning. For Congress, because the election, the primary for the U.S. Congress in 1970 was get this May 5th, 1970, a Tuesday. May 4th, 1970, was Kent State. Oh well. I am convinced to this day that the only reason I won the Democratic primary is because of the outrage about what had happened. That. There were people that actually consciously went to the polls and voted for, you know, the anti-war candidate. And so, you know, that tragedy, you know, in a sense, was the birth of my political career. Uh, there's no way away. But the guy I beat, God bless him, he's not around anymore, but his name was Vernon Bible. So the Cincinnati Enquirer had a headline, Springer slashes Bible. <laughs>
1: perfect <laughs> perfect so it just i doesn't think end, does it? all along my
2: career there've been signs uh-huh. that i'm just not there <laughs> yeah.
0: i'm just you a found loser your niche. you I'm crazy just to do a segue a lot of in that same era 60s <laughs> or into the early 70s uh, folk music was a key expression of a lot of viewpoints it was a tool And uh, there were many songs and many groups that were birthed by these uh, themes, these poems that became protest songs. Uh, Some of them old songs, when you think of the anti-war movement, Down by the Riverside, uh, a a wonderful song that borrowed from an old Negro spiritual and turned that into an iconic anti-war song. But when I hang out, which I do regularly at the Folk School Coffee Parlor, and I sometimes talk with uh, the man sitting to my right, who is Casey Campbell, who is a member of our team doing a great job as our music coordinator because he's wired into, he's a singer himself, a performer, wired into all these groups, including the one uh, group, we're, uh, duo we're going to hear from shortly. Casey and I were talking the other day about the resurgence of folk music in this era and Megan you can speak to this too as a young person uh because Jerry and I you know found this music back in the 60s and into the 70s and even sort of coming over a bit from the 50s Kingston Trio right Jerry and Pete Seeger and the Weavers that go actually back into the 50s Casey I wanted to ask you what do you see happening today when I talk to you and you bring in this this stream of uh Folk singers and songwriters as well, and they're all young people. What do you think is driving what I think you and I agree as a bit of a resurgence of folk music in the year 2015? Is something going on, and if so, what is it, and where does it come from?
4: Well, uh, I certainly think something is uh, happening in this music. I I think it's been probably 15 years in the making. Okay, uh, a big, a big marker as far as the mass. The, the mass market appeal is uh, the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen oh, Brother yeah. feature, I'm sure. sure most everyone is familiar with that. That movie, I think it really sparked an interest in this old time uh, sound. There are sort of sub-genres in folk music. You have your Stanley Brothers and Flat and & Scruggs kind of bluegrass. And that's not so much what we're really talking about here. It's more of the uh, old traditionals, just like uh, Goodnight Irene that we are always going out on. Those guys that really lived that Dust Bowl life, that really wrote hardscrabble folk music. You know, folk music, music for people who work for a living and who can understand these stories. And uh, the Old Brother Art, they all sort of touched on uh, both genres of that, the refined bluegrass and then that real old traditional thick harmony vocally driven story driven kind of music that's sort of what we really cling to here we love those old songwriters um, here at the folk school coffee folk parlor school, yeah yeah yep. everything that we're trying to do here is whispering really beard. whispering beard yep, the whispering uh, beard folk, folk festival, festival uh, in friendship indiana uh, the workshops we do they're all sort of traditionally based on instruments uh, and instrumentation we're doing maybe even some shape note singing you know really digging back into the roots wow. of uh, music and mountain music and front porch music um and guys like we have tonight out of uh, the the Austin-San Marcos area in Texas, and that Texas songwriter style, that Towns Van Zandt, uh, Guy Clark, really just dry and dusty tales, and, uh, you know, some nice wry lyrics in there, you know, digging at sort of these problems underlying in society and and the things that make people Driven to this kind of music, something that is really speaking to their life. Things are not so great right now for a lot of people, you know, uh, socioeconomically speaking. Uh, there, all a lot of these old stories people can relate to again. I mean, they're getting laid off. Things are tough. You're worried about keeping the lights on. You're worried about it's keeping in it. You know, it's
0: the same story. The same it hasn't changed at all. Yeah. yeah. And there's two aspects to it. There's the sound of it, which you were just speaking Mm -hmm. to. And then there are the stories, the Mm -hmm. themes. And you're saying the themes connect to socioeconomic times. And Jerry, you've spoken about that a bunch, Mm -hmm. income disparities, et cetera. Where would you say casey because I think there are some hotbeds of this kind of music. Mm-hmm. You and I've talked about Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky is legit one of those hotspots. I I absolutely agree. Lots of quality groups coming out of here. And then wouldn't Austin, Texas, San Marcos, that whole area be another spot? Would oh, Asheville certainly. be another spot?
4: Yeah, Asheville's really been uh hip to that scene for a good while. Um uh there are I'm trying to think of some of the cities, sort of a the way. Jalopy Theater
0: up in Brooklyn yep, would be a Brooklyn, spot. Uh, St.
4: Louis has the St. Louis uh, School of Folk Music. Uh, Chicago, of course, the Old Town uh, School of Folk. Yeah. Uh, the Greater Chicago area, we know a lot of people up that way now. You know, Bloomington, uh, Il- uh, Indiana, rather, and Illinois, and a, a lot of these uh, urban uh, areas. I think some of the guys out of Cincinnati, the Tillers, who we've who you've uh, featured on a- an episode mm-hmm. prior. Uh, a lot of those guys. Um, all across the country are sort of these uh, post-punk guys. They're coming out of uh, punk music, harder, really hard-driven music. And uh, I've talked to a couple of those guys, and I think some of of the draw of folk music and the real traditional stuff is sort of a devolution of music in general. Uh, Anybody who listens to pop radio can understand how much computer driven the music is these days it's very polished it's very it's cardboard, yeah, box yeah, kind it's, of music yep. and uh you know talking to uh Aaron Gile uh, of the of the tillers the bass player we were talking one day and um you know they started in this grungy music which is kind of minimal on its own punk is really about yeah. you know expression and uh as the music kind of evolves and your tastes evolve and so it the the whole the whole genre just keeps feeding itself back to this really—I don't want to say primitive, but something very traditional mm-hmm. about the sound, the emotion, uh, just the, that stomp your foot and say something kind of kind of music, you know. And it's just very—it's all—it's very authentic. And I, Gene, and I have talked about this a number of times. I have no background in this music at mm-hmm. all whatsoever. I come—I like pop. I always have, and I always say, the crappier the pop, the better. Yeah. But this has—it—it—the it, it, feeling of it is just—it's so real, and it's so—it's there's nothing manufactured about it. So it's oh, yeah. been so cool to listen and learn.
2: I, I come from stuff. Perry Como. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, hey, there's nothing. Wrong. I wanted to sing like Nat King Cole when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I came from my dad. My dad brought me up on oldies from Roy Orbison through the Statler Brothers, you know, early country, and I discovered jazz on my own, and then I slowly fed myself back to banjos. You know,
2: until the recent era of when it's so commercial, the music was not because you wanted something, you know, to go to the prom with. It reflected what was going on in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so it That's was exactly a form what you're of saying. expression. Yeah. Yep. So, and that is why I think it, it is getting another life today because again it's reflecting people's and sometimes this is the only way they can express it and by the way that's the same with rap music Mm -hmm. and uh you know the music that comes from the neighborhoods whatever the neighborhoods your neighborhoods are absolutely that's real life and that can't be put together by a computer and, and that's what the soul is here. You know what the cool thing
0: is, Jerry, when you and I talked first about doing a podcast and then we kind of got into this idea, let's add an element of music. And we said, let's just do the kind of music we like, which is folk music. And we were thinking back to yeah. the stuff we knew as kids. And then we found that the folk music we're doing, which you and I love as much as anybody in this room every time we do it, they're all young people, yeah. all doing their versions they're just of like. Things. there there's <laughs> no, listen, we just reach across this this cultural uh, chasm. yeah, it's it's spectacular, You're totally right. And we didn't exactly predict that, but it, and that's no. a credit to Casey because he's the one yeah. wired into all those groups. First of oh, all, thanks, man. Casey yeah. for your words. We're going to do one uh, other shift, Jerry, uh, and we then are going to hear some music uh, from this wonderful group out of Texas, San Marcos, Texas. Uh, As we roll through the summer, the Supremes, the Supreme Court justices are going to make a statement or maybe take some action or maybe take no action on the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on that. As I understand it, the big question is whether those 34 states that do not have state uh marketplace marketplaces whether the language of the bill will cause the supreme court justices to say those 34 shut down which in effect would really shoot a big gaping hole into the affordable care act but anyway speak to that a little bit please
2: well i think this is a perfect example of whether the society chooses to be dishonest and I, i'm not suggesting at least in this discussion, what side you take on the Affordable Health Care Act. But it is clear that a bill that is 900 pages long, the purpose of the bill was that all Americans would be able to afford to have health insurance because you'd be required to get it, and if you couldn't afford it, there'd be a subsidy. And the reason you had to force everyone to get it is because otherwise, if you were going to pass a law that just said insurance companies can't deny you coverage because of a pre-existing condition, then no one would buy insurance until they got sick. Because why pay the premiums? They have to take you when you're sick, and then you get the insurance. And then, of course, every insurance company would go broke because you, know, you can't survive on insurance if only sick people are paying in because you've got to pay out to them. Everybody knows that if you're going to have health insurance for all Americans and you want it in the private sector, you have to have everyone getting it. So that was that. And they passed the law after much debate, 900 pages, that that was the purpose. There are four words in those 900 pages, four words when they're referring to the marketplaces, they said that subsidies will be given to people who buy their insurance in the marketplaces, and they added, these four words were put in, marketplaces established by the state. It was sloppy writing. What that meant was If a governor and the state legislature decided not to create a marketplace, they wouldn't have to have this insurance in their state. Well, that clearly wasn't the idea. So 33 Republican governors, there are 34 states, but one of them has a Democratic governor, I think Delaware. 33 Republican governors decided, because they don't like Obama or they don't like the president or his plan or whatever, that those states will show them We're not going to set up a marketplace. Let the federal government set up its marketplace, which the feds did. But then some lawyers or politicians looking for an excuse to throw the whole thing out found these four words and got to the Supreme Court and said, this law does not permit you to give subsidies to people unless it's a Marketplace established by your state. So if you live in a state, as Ohio does, for example, that doesn't have the marketplace, you can't get the subsidy. If the Supreme Court decides that those four words negate the entire Affordable Health Care Act, eight million people that evening will be without health insurance. They'll be out. 8 million human beings that now have health insurance, it'll be stripped from them. Now the Republicans are starting to panic a little bit because they realize never in the history of the United States of America has the government ever taken something away from 8 million people. Sometimes they didn't vote to give them something. Like it took a long time to get Social Security and all that stuff. But they never, ever passed a law to take it away. Eight million people. And everyone who wants a political future is suddenly saying, oh, we've got to come up with something. It's disgusting. We all know. In fact, they interviewed the United States senators who passed this legislation. And not one of them said that was the purpose. Olympia Snow was the senator from Vermont, am I wrong?
1: Maine. Maine.
2: Maine, sorry, sorry. From Maine. She said it was never, she said, I didn't vote for it, but it was never the intention that those four words should stop people in those states from having health insurance. We all knew what the bill would do. So it's that's what I mean. It's dishonest. It's a lie. We know what the intention was. We know what the purpose was. And how you can have anyone deciding to run for political office and that their big thing is going to be, by gosh, we're going to beat this down. I'm not saying it's the greatest bill ever written. Then fix it. But you don't throw it out and have 8 million people suddenly without health insurance. And then, and then I'll quit. This article just drove me nuts. This um, Carly Farina, why can't I have Farina? It must be a Freudian slip. Okay, and and she's just one, so I'm not just picking on her, but a bunch of them. She gets to speak to this group in Iowa, and by the way, was a real hit. They loved her. She was the most popular one there, as it turned out. And she starts making jokes about the Affordable Health Care Act. Boy, it... It was longer than the ha- Harry Potter series and not as interesting. Ha ha. And they all laughed. And all these people making fun. And then she talks about her own personal life, figuring this will be a real tearjerker. And how, you know, she lost the stepdaughter and she had, uh, she had breast cancer and just tough things that happened in her life and how Jesus came into her life and all that. And what part of her, you know, here she is appealing to these people, look at the tough time I had. And it was tough. Any one of us who's had tragedy in the family, we know that. I'm not belittling that at all. But what kind of a human being are you that you can get people sympathy for what happened in your family and screw the 8 million people? You don't think any of them have cancer? You don't think any of them are going to get sick? Lose a child? I mean, this is a question of decency. It's not a question of legislation. We know how to fix the bill. Fix it. But while you're fixing it, don't take health insurance away from any family. It is disgusting. And don't tell me you have this great belief in God and caring and being a decent human being and then say you're okay with 8 million people suddenly not having health insurance. Can you imagine if it was your family and suddenly there's a great, and you can't afford it? And you love your kid, you love your wife, you love whatever, and you can't take care of her because you can't have the insurance? What's wrong with us? And these people want to be president? How dare they run for political office? I'm not hoping that they lose. I'm pissed
0: off that they're running. If you don't care, don't run. That's Jerry Springer coming to speak at your Democratic dinner yeah. next month. <laughs> I hey, think we have, that we can do better. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't know the Constitution clearly, do you? Since you were born in that, weren't you born like an elevator shaft or something in London or yeah, it something? it was a subway. Well, okay, a subway stop. All right, okay, okay, okay. I, I, and I was Mix born in England, and I left when I
2: found out I couldn't be king. Yeah. And now I come here to America, You can't be president. Can't be president. Yeah. You uh, think you're upset.
0: Yeah, all right. <laughs> hey, it's real exciting. Tonight okay. we have uh, Adam and Chris Carroll from San Marcos, Texas, to perform a song that one of them wrote. Maybe you'll tell us uh, that uh, Adam wrote called uh, Bernadine, correct? Yeah. All right. We'll take a listen, and then we'll chat afterwards.
3: I hit my stride In Louisiana Where it's hard to tell The daytime from the night I placed my bets I saw the faces Of the winners and the losers In the lives I dragged my nets Off the widow, Megan, up three weeks' pay, got a motel key. New Orleans, sure found a winner. Off a low-rent run-down Gulf Coast loser like me. My, the worst you've seen, Bernadine. Cast a little of your loving down my way. Keep these dyes from turning cold. Make my hard time shine like gold. Shed a little mercy burn. Window, the night gave in along the poncho train. Ran with little Joe, lost all my money. I got a whiskey and salt water running in my veins. Saint Bernardine, please don't forsake me. You gonna help me, help me find my way. If these hard times, if these hard times don't overtake me, I'm gonna cast my nets into Galveston Bay. Am I the worst you've seen? Hey, Bernadine, cast a little of your love in. my way, keep these dives from turning cold, make my heart time shine like gold, shed a little mercy, Bernadine, am I the worst you've
1: seen,
3: hey, Bernadine, cast a little of your loving down my way. turnin' cold, make my heart time shine like gold, shed a little mercy burn, shed a little mercy burn.
0: That's Adam and Chris Carroll from San Marcos, Texas. And uh, Adam and Chris are... Welcome to our husbands. country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Husband and wife. And uh, by the way, they perform separately as well as together. And uh, Adam's latest album is Let It Choose You. And Chris's latest album is Trouble and Time. And you did... Bernadine, can you tell us a little bit about the... What's the backstory on that song? It's a great song, by the way. Great.
3: Thank you, well, uh, I wrote that song with a guy named Michael O'Connor, who's actually been to the folk school as well. And he's from Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, and, and uh, so Michael uh, talks a lot about growing up on the Gulf Coast. And so uh, we wrote that song about a South Texas fisherman going gambling in Louisiana, which, uh, you know, happens, happens quite a bit. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and that's where I know you're from. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, we found Michael and I found out that Saint Bernadine is actually the patron saint of uh, compulsive gamblers. Uh, that's interesting. Well, and so, uh, and and I think other things too, like chest pains. And- yeah, it's so interesting
0: how they go how they yeah, you know Lose cross those over. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, so now, do you are you guys out? You're out touring. That's why you're here. I know you performed here at the Folk School Coffee Parlor on Sunday, as I recall. Yes. Right. But are you f- both full-time performers and songwriters and entertainers?
1: We are. Adam, you know, uh, imported me from Canada. You mentioned Canada. Yeah. So I am uh, allowed to stay here. The Homeland Security said it's okay. So, yeah. It's so great. and then he said I could get in the car and go with him and travel around and play music. At first I wasn't allowed to sing unless everyone was having fun because I was on a pleasure visa which meant I was allowed to work here, so, so, but al- now you can be miserable and listen to me sing and these guys, you know, thank you for the Folk School Coffee Parlor and everyone here that has helped us come to Good. Cincinnati and Kentucky area to play. And- be part of this like it's it's really neat you know i, I gotta put a shout out to ian and, and lynette matthew who who came to, they drove all the way from cincinnati to come to an adam carroll show in, in corpus christi wow, wow. that's dedication yeah. and now that's why we're here so isn't that neat you know? it is and that's what's going on with this with this community of music
0: idiot i'm so. glad you uh mentioned that chris because uh that's all part of what's happening with this genre there's something going on and it's got just a great vibe to it. And this place where we record this is part of that vibe and that sort of commu- uh, that spirit that you it's just here. described. It's wonderful. Uh, we're hoping you guys know uh, Irene Goodnight. And if you do, if you would I take us out on that. And Jerry will sing a verse. Thank
1: you for having us here. Today.
0: You are very Thank welcome. You. Yeah, it's wonderful.
1: You've been listening to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, sponsored by the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song, and to you for listening. Hope to see you all again
0: real soon.
3: Stop gambling, stop rambling Stop staying out late at night Go home to your wife and your family Sit down by the fireside, sideline
2: i live in town sometimes i take a great notion to jump into the river